Episode 177, Emily Learing, licensed marriage and family therapist and author of the children's book, Henry Knows Best. I had specifically set this up for a certain population, and that population was not the one who was reaching out to me. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Emily, her work, her book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 177. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. And joining me today is Emily Learing. She is a mental health professional based in South Dakota. Uh, her practice is called Encompass Mental Health, and the website is SiouxFallsCounseling.com. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Emily has an MA in Marriage and Family Therapy and a BS in Human Development and Family Studies. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and a registered play therapist. She's the author of a fantastic children's book, which is actually how I found Emily. It is titled Henry Knows Best, a story about learning from mistakes and listening to others. So uh, it's a children's book, but I think there's important lessons and reminders uh, for me there as an adult. So welcome to the podcast, Emily. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to um, you know, to chat about the book and a little bit more about your work. But as we always do here, I'm curious, um, looking back at the different things you've done professionally, what would you say is your favorite mistake? So my favorite mistake happened when I first branched out into my entrepreneurial journey. I decided to open a child care program. And I had people who were calling me, emailing me, constantly trying to get their kids in which sounds great when you open a business and a bunch of people are wanting to get in. It's a great thing. The issue was I had set it up with a specific goal in mind for who I wanted this childcare program to be for. Cause this was when I was a licensed mental health professional. It's not really typically common for licensed mental health professionals to run childcare programs. So I had specifically set this up for a certain population and that population was not the one who was reaching out to me. So I was getting calls from all these people who wanted to get their kids in, and they were not my ideal client. So I did end up closing that childcare program. But the reason it's my favorite mistake is it really opened the door for where I am now professionally. I actually got connected with a professional in my community that asked me to be a keynote speaker at a conference for childcare professionals. And that kind of just started everything rolling for me to be where I am today professionally. So that that closure of that program, and I'd like to go back and ask some questions about yeah, it. Definitely. It sounds like that decision to close it, um, thankfully, didn't turn you off from starting something new and trying again. No, no, yeah. I've, I've definitely, and obviously with the Henry book too, but I, that practice, I'm a licensed mental health professional in South Dakota and the practice is my own. I, I started it as a private practice after I closed the childcare program and have grown it into a group practice. So there's been a lot of different things I've done entrepreneurially since then. It was just kind of a roadblock and a, okay, let's stop and think about what this decision was and what was good about it, but what direction do I want to go now? Yeah. And what was your original vision 
you know, for the, the child care, for the daycare, what, what types of, you know, uh, or children with what types of needs were, were you really looking to, to bring in and, and why? Tell us more about that vision. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when I started working um, in the mental health field, I graduated from grad school, I got my first job, and I was working with families who were involved with the child protection system. And so my job as a mental health professional was to make sure that we gave the family the resources and supports and helped the kid and the family out so that they would try to reach that ultimate goal of staying in their household. Um, some of them were not able to, some of them needed to go to foster care for safety, or some needed to go to like, um, specialized schools because the kids' behaviors were so significant, or maybe like a day treatment program or a residential facility. So the reason that I got passionate about early childhood is because I would start by working with someone who was 14, 15, 16. And really our goal was let's just get this kiddo through high school. Once they turn 18, then they can make their own choices. But we're just trying to help this family while this kid is in high school. And that just didn't feel good to me because I would sit down and I would talk with these families and I would say, okay, tell me about those first couple of years. And we would find out from the childcare perspective, parents had to work. That was just a part of their, their livelihood. Um, and they didn't have quality childcare that, that was either affordable or that they even really knew about. So it might've been like Monday, the aunt watched and Tuesday, mom was off. And then Wednesday, grandma watched and Thursday, the neighbor took care of the kiddo. So I became super passionate about um, infant and early childhood mental health to try to help support families in those moments. So it wasn't so much about necessarily wanting it to be those exact families, but basically families who have had generations of not having support as a parent And so that makes it challenging within that role to be able to parent your child. And it just, it does just keep getting passed on from generation to generation. So I wanted it to be more than just a childcare program. It was a place where kids would be able to come and get quality care, but also that I'd be like a mentor to these parents who didn't really have those resources and supports in their community or within their family. And like little events, like uh, let's have like a donuts with dad, where we come in and we kind of have the kids eat with dad and and just kind of help to build those connections and muffins with moms and things like that, where we can have moms and dads be together with their kids and we can kind of show them how to connect with them and how to respond to things like, you know, temper tantrums and defiance and things like that. So it was really about wanting certain families who are really in need of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just was not who was coming, was able to come. Yeah. Well, it sounds like just, you know, putting up that sign or website or listing, there was, there was such demand, such need for childcare. They were mm-hmm. calling you as well as calling others, just trying to, trying to find a place. Yes. Yeah. And they were hearing through the grapevine. Emily is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's a registered play therapist. She has a master's degree. Who doesn't want that for their kid? Uh, of course, people want the most educated individual. Plus they were hearing about me from other people who knew me from other professional work that I had done. And, so they were saying, oh, how great would that be if I could get my kid in to be with her? Okay. Yeah. So there was there was the fact that it was daycare plus your reputation and background mm-hmm. and experience. And are are, they, are these um, kind of a similar profile of younger children that you're trying to help now in, in your practice? You know, and I, I would say one of the things that I really learned from this is that like at that time, I was a young, young entrepreneur. You know, I had this idea, kind of a rigid idea of where my professional goals were. Now I am working with people across the spectrum. So I am working with individuals who have been involved with child protection and, and need that support. I'm also working with people, you know, 
parents, both parents have six figure incomes and are feeling stressed out about their kids and need that support. And so I, that is an area that I've learned since then. And I think that this helped me to grow, to understand that every parent is in need of help. It isn't just the parent who doesn't have that support. And some people have the financial support, but they don't have the social support and vice versa. Um, so that is definitely something that I've learned throughout this process for sure. Were, were there any other kind of key lessons learned from starting up a business? I'm sure going through and just um, getting things established, uh, getting a building and a lease, and hopefully you weren't trapped in that. So I, I actually did family child care. So that was within my home. Um, Cause I did, oh, okay. I'm, I'm very ah. risk averse, <laughs> so, yeah. which an entrepreneur cannot be 100% risk averse, of course, but I try to, to limit my risk the best that I can. So mm-hmm. that was the easiest way to do it in my state because every state has different licensing requirements. And so if you want to open up a daycare center, you have to meet in, in my city specifically, you have to meet a lot of requirements. So yeah, it would have required a lot of work and financial input on my end, which might've been enough to make me say, okay, I just have to let whoever wants to come be here at this well, point. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you raise a good point. I mean, as much as we embrace, I, you know, I think I do and within this podcast, learning from mistakes, it's better to learn from small mistakes instead mm-hmm. of taking a big leap. So, I mean, I guess if things had gone the way you had wanted, you could have started off with that home-based care and then maybe gone out to a separate facility. Um, but it sounds like mm-hmm. it made it easier for you to back away. It might've been a bigger mistake where you, where you would have felt trapped. Like, oh, well, exactly. I have, I have this building, I hired people. I get, well, mm-hmm. I guess this is what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but that's not, that's not what your passion was. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, and then as you, as you started um, a private practice, you know, just curious, um, you know, the, the, bringing on others and turning into uh, a group practice. If, if that for some seems scary or risky, where there's some things mm-hmm. that you could do to help, um, you know, take some chances without taking really scary risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was very scary at the beginning that kind of the timeline was that um, my husband, who was also an entrepreneur went through a phase where he had a choice of, do I continue moving forward with this? business or do I, do I say, you know what, we're done. And do I join Emily? Because I was, I was in a spot where it's like, I can't handle all the calls that are coming in and there's insurance and it's really, really complicated to to follow up with insurance. That's why hospital systems have billing people and people who answer the phones and all of that. Um, So my husband actually was who came on to help get me started, which was really scary at first because there was obviously a lag in uh, when we could add people, we had to like work on all this. We had to get a space and we had to get everything set up. So there was a couple of months, quite a few months like there. Um, and also at a time that I found out was, I was pregnant with my second child. So it was really, really fun. <laughs> a really great time. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of fear during that time of what that would look like. Um, and we tried to cut costs as much as we could, because again, I'm, I'm very risk averse. And so we try to do everything, everything as, as slim as possible. Um, I did have the benefit of like the group practice evolved in the spring, early summer of 2019. Um, so then a year later, mental health needs skyrocketed. Um, so I honestly don't know what my group practice would look like if it had not been for a global pandemic um, and and the, the change in telehealth and those types of things that made um, mental health more accessible because we... In 2019, we started with, I had two 
mental health professionals that were on my team. And now um, two in addition to me. And now there's seven in addition to me. So we've really grown quite quickly because of that. Yeah, well, that's great. And it's, it's, it's good that you've been able to pursue and, and grow something that's more aligned, it seems, with your more specific uh, purpose and passion. You know, and I, I think, too, to myself, because I've grown so much and I've learned that every parent does need help. Either way, I probably would have figured things out and been in line with my professional goals. I just had to kind of process through that and get there. One of the things that I did learn, you know, in, in the field of children's mental health, there is an unwritten rule that if you're not a parent, you don't truly understand what it's like. And so, yes, you can be the expert on what this kid needs, but people don't really fully embrace that until you've become a parent yourself. I personally feel like the time I spent providing care to other people's children in my home has been the most important aspect of how I am as a therapist. Like I understand parental mental health so much more because of that. And my own kids have contributed to that too, but I already had that before. Like that was the big change for me. And so that was an awesome experience for me too, to be able to have that and learn from that and adapt into who I am as a mental health professional. Yeah. So, uh, so Emily, I want to talk about the book. Um, again, the title yeah. is uh, Henry Knows Best, a story about learning from mistakes and listening to others. Like what I'm guessing. So I want to know what the inspiration was. Like, what was the spark? I'm, 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 a, I'm guessing you don't have a son named Henry. No. Uh, have you looked in the back of the book? I've read the book. I, I don't have it handy. Did you I? You don't miss? have handy. No. That's I miss um, in the so back Henry is my dog. So I actually have a okay. strong-willed corgi <laughs> named Henry. Okay. Um, and you know the reason I came up with it is actually strong-willed children come up a lot in my practice. And I actually have a blog, I think you mentioned at the beginning, my Disciplined Children blog. And that is because I, um, in my in my counseling practice, a bunch of people were saying, you know, I am doing all the things that they say I'm supposed to be doing, all these parenting magazines, all these parenting articles say you do this, but my strong-willed kid is just not listening to that. That's not working. And we do find that children, based on their personalities, have different needs in terms of discipline and, and the way we respond to their behaviors. So I started that blog for parents to just to give them some different guidance on how do you respond specifically to somebody who is strong-willed versus how you respond to somebody who's um, anxious or um, kind of a go with the flow because those are very two very different children, um, which also we could definitely equate this to adults as well, <laughs> um, their personalities and how we interact. So Henry kind of evolves from there that Parents were saying, I'm trying to have these conversations with him. He's not listening. What do I do? And so I just wanted to give parents a tool to be able to talk about these topics without it having to be, you know, you are doing this wrong. Instead, it's helpful to say, oh, look what happened to Henry when he didn't listen to this person or that person. Look how it affected him. Look how it affected others. Yeah. Um, when you talk about strong-willed, um, there's, a, there's a phrase that I've run across, I don't think it's been pointed at me, but there's this phrase that I've run across, um, oppositional defiance disorder, mm -hmm. if I'm remembering that right. Yep, you are. So what, what, what is the difference between um, a kid who's just going through a developmental phase who likes to say no, you know, to everything versus something that gets it then characterized as a, a quote unquote disorder? Sure. Yeah. So the disorder is um, typically in the diagnostic manual that we use, 
first of all, there's going to be like, it's, it's impacting your day-to-day life, whether you're going to school or you're at home and like your whole family life is disrupted because of this behavior or um, you're getting, you know, expelled from school or things like that because of your behavior. It's really hard to, it can be hard to differentiate because there are plenty of people who probably do qualify for an ODD diagnosis, but their parents have just accepted this as their personality and have never really gone out and, and sought treatment for it. Um, and then there are other people who family can't function because of it. Um, little kids definitely go through developmental phases where everything is no. Um, and so that, and that's what I talk about with my families and the, um, on my blog is that they need a lot of control. We all as humans need a lot of control and kids don't get it very much. So um, for kids who are strong-willed, if we try to micromanage their day-to-day, they're going to push back harder and harder and harder. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have ODD. It could just mean that if we took a step back and let them have more control, then things would ease up. But since we're coming at them, they're coming at us and it's kind of a headbutting situation. Yeah. Well, thanks. And, um, you know, thinking back to, um, to Henry, um, you know, the, 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 the relationship damage, you know, there, you know, that, that came from not listening to others, you know, sort of illustrated within the book, or you might see, um, in, in, in real life, um, you know, it seemed like it took a while, it took Henry or whatnot to give the whole book away, but you know, so I so want people uh, to, to buy the book and, and, and support you and share that book with uh, people who could benefit from it. But like, uh, it's, it, it took a while, right? So the learning from mistakes sometimes takes time or something has to get maybe bad enough for someone to say, oh, wait, I, I should, I should change. I should learn. Well, I, I guess this is going to be a very broad, you know, open question, but um, you know, I'm curious how often does some, do you see somebody repeating the same mistakes to a point where there's no avoiding doing something you know, where, where it could have maybe been addressed earlier? You know, I think as uh, humans, we generally tend to be more oppositional. Um, so we kind of go into every situation thinking I'm right. The way I view this is right. And not, not that they're even like, thinking, Hey, I'm a narcissist or anything like that. It's not like that, but it's just kind of ingrained in us. The way I view the world is the way that it is. So it can be harder to take somebody else's um, point of view into account for some people. They just have a really hard time ever seeing that you can have conversations, but like with, for like, for example, for Henry, if you say to him before he does something, you shouldn't do this because this is going to happen. He's probably not going to listen to it. He needs to have that conversation as a strong-willed personality afterwards. Okay, so you made this choice and this is what happened. What do you think about it? Instead of us saying like, you have to stop doing this, they have to kind of think through and process through what has happened. Um, and I think that that's true for adults too. If you, you know, you said he he created that change, but it took him a while. It took him a while to say, yeah, mom, I think I know, you know what you're talking about. But I always point out to my clients, there's no guarantee that next time that same situation happens, that he won't do the exact same thing because it's hard to change those patterns. So for a lot of people, it's admitting that and then making a mistake again and admitting it and making a little bit less mistake next time. And it being this evolving process because people don't just say, oh, yes, I understand what I've done wrong. And now I'm going to make that change. It's a, it's a like rewriting your brain structure, really. It's like, it's hard for you to just 
flip a switch like that and say, okay, I'm not going to do that ever again. Yeah. And you, you, you talk about, um, you know, adults and, and some of their needs. I mean, whether it's Henry or an adult in a workplace, I mean, it seems like there's a balance. Like people, I think, naturally do tend to like their own ideas. I, mm-hmm. And a lot yeah. of the work. And there's nothing wrong with us for that. That that makes sense. Yeah, you know, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, this phrase, uh, Meg Wheatley, who I think is a psychologist who's done a lot of work around change management. You know, there's this phrase she uses: "People own what they create," and you know, I think that's natural. But when, let's say, it's a situation like Henry in the book of of sort of thinking or even saying nobody else knows how to do it but me mm-hmm. at, at, like, at what point does that when well, you use the word you know narcissistic is is that part of someone being a narcissist that they think they're the only one who gets it or is it just sort of a related thing that tends to happen I mean that's kind of tricky I definitely in the mental health world narcissism is not something that we love working with. So there's certain professionals who, who commit themselves to that and who are the experts of that. So I can't really define what narcissism is um, and where you cross that line from like overconfidence into, into being um, a narcissist. But um, I don't know. I think for some people, it's just that they, they don't even see the connection between um, their actions and how it affects others. And this is an example I use for my childcare professionals all the time is um, I can go to my husband's softball game and I can see grown men get upset about something that happened and they're going to start getting in each other's faces, you know, swearing at each other, uh, throwing punches, things like that. And then we can see one of those same individuals who's a parent snapping at their kid and saying, hey, we don't hit people. And And that to an outsider makes complete sense of why a kid would watch his dad do that and then act in that way. But the parent has like completely oblivious to it. So I think for a lot of people, it's just that disconnect between seeing how I acted and and what that consequence is um, that leads to people not always understanding that maybe they could learn something from their actions. Yeah. Yeah, or or being able to anticipate the reaction or the impact, I guess. I mean, in a, I mean, I was, I was standing waiting to board a plane um, last week and, you know, it seemed like it was maybe a, a four-year-old boy and a six-year-old sister. Um, and I always make mistakes at guessing ages, but let's pretend that that's sure. what ages were. They, they were both young. They could have been three and five, but um, the little boy was running around and I was, I was pretty surprised or, you know, he comes running toward his sister and like both hands, like just gives her a full on like shove, mm-hmm. So like the shoulders and the sister kind of goes flying backward and is clearly not happy and crying. And, like you know, it's just it's interesting to see stages of development where, well, then the, then the boy got upset. And I don't know if you sure. seen afraid he was going to get in trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's hard to tell seeing the effect of what happened mm-hmm. or the OK, I'm in trouble. But it's just interesting to, to think, well, you know, it, a child that young might not be able to anticipate the expected cause and effect of if I shove my sister, she's going to fall. It's going to hurt. She's going to be upset. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't yeah, know if his, he was expecting that or if he was surprised by it. Yeah. In his mind, we're having fun. This is great. And then this happens. And, you know, for some people, impulse control is a big challenge and there's developmental phases where we know kids aren't going to have it. But then there are also certain situations where kids might not have it to the level that they're supposed to. And so, for example, like a Henry, he, he could just come in and say, I have an idea. I'm going to do this. 
knock over a towel or something like that to other kids. He didn't come in saying, it is my intention to bother you all. It is my intention to knock down what you've created. It's just that impulse control of, I have an idea and I'm going to do it. And so that is, that's a factor in it too. So I think that's a, a human behavior is so hard to really narrow down because it's not just one thing that's contributing to it. There's a lot of different things. So even strong-willed children or strong-willed personalities, they're still impacted by their relationships with their family members and where they work and where they live and all that stuff. It's it's fairly complicated. And, you know, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm observing these children um, at the airport. Uh, I'm not a parent, so I don't have that direct experience or, uh, you know, that direct experience. Um, sure from, from seeing, you know, about these things that happen, but I, I can think of parallels to adults in a workplace. Absolutely. Of somebody verbally shoving somebody, mm-hmm. right. That sort of, that same, maybe you know, if it's lack of impulse control or intentional, um, I'm going to say something like, was that, were, were you trying to upset them or are you surprised <laughs> that what you said could be really upsetting? Um, you know, thinking of what you said about coming in and, and knocking something down. I think sometimes in organizations, um, you know, a leader comes in and is well-intended and they have an idea and they're doing the equivalent of knocking down someone's tower of blocks yes. that they've built. And in and, and the similar behaviors, it, you know, it's not too much of a stretch to think of parallel situations. And then the challenge is, what do we do about it as adults? Do we you know, hopefully, do we hope they get leadership coaching or at what point? I know this is a very general question. It might be unfair. Uh, it might be a mistake to ask. But like, at what point does even an adult in a workplace maybe need to consider more clinical help or counseling? Yeah, I mean, there, there's not an official answer to that. My answer to people is if you think for, for yourself, at least, if you think you need help, you probably should seek it out because we all need it, really, especially right now, what's going on with the global pandemic and work shortages and all that stuff. I mean, it's just, it's a stressful, it has been a stressful time for people. Um, So I think everyone could benefit from it, but there isn't that line that says, okay, you need to do this. I mean, I'm I'm sure there are certain company policies that exist where they say, okay, this is, this is a line that we've drawn. If you've, you know, caused emotional harm to people or something like that, that can be measured, but it's still really hard to, to recognize that. The other thing that we'll say is, we, we talk about in therapy, if you're a customer or you're a hostage. So if you're a court ordered to go to therapy, the only way that you're going to get the benefit of therapy is you, if you change yourself from a hostage to a customer. If you don't want to be there, you're not going to get anything out of it. It's not like we can tell you what to do and you're just going to take it and, and learn from it. So really clinical work, you know, one-on-one or group or anything like that it's the level of investment that the individual has when they go there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it, the expression would be true. You have to want to be helped mm-hmm. to get help. Yep. You have to want to change. You could be sent to a therapist or a HR class or something. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, tell, so back to your point earlier of like, you can't tell someone you have to stop doing this. Right. Workplace behavior or professional behavior that that's causing harm or damaging relationships. They're going to have to embrace that hopefully at some point. And being able to figure out like when we come in and say, you have to stop saying what you're saying that that does nothing to them. It just tells them something they can't do. Instead. It's that understanding of why, why would we want you to not do this? What, 
what harm has it caused you or others? That is the value that comes from like a strong will personality. And, you know, for, for people with strong wills, they will accept the consequence. I mean, there are people who are thrill seekers. They know they might get a ticket because they're driving too fast, or they know that what they're doing could uh, result in some medical bills if they get hurt. They think about it, they process it, and they say, yeah, I still want to do this. And again, that's human nature. And so it's it's hard when like we, especially like in a leadership, we just want to be able to say, okay, this is the rule and you got to follow it. Well, that's just not life. People don't follow every single rule. They always stretch them and think about what the consequence is. And that's that's humans. That's what we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I ask you a couple other things, Emily, you know, on, on your website, um, and again, uh, the website, SiouxFallsCounseling.com, there's uh, an intro video that you mm-hmm. recorded there. And yeah. um, again, like another hint that, you know, you, you're in the right place on this podcast. And in that intro video, you said, um, I'm not a perfect person. I make mistakes. Um, I don't expect perfection. That's not reality. So I was wondering, you know, how, how does, you know, being kind of front and center of admitting your own mistakes, admitting that you're not perfect. How, how does that help your clients or how does that help you work with them? And that comes completely from the fact that I've worked with families and of young children since I started um, as, as a mental health professional. And I'll say, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was doing childcare prior to my mental health field transition, when I was, you know, before I went to grad school and everything, I did have this idea of like, this is how you respond to a kid when this happens. And this is the one answer. Um, so I had a lot of growing to do. And, and I just heard from so many parents about like, you can't parent from a book. Um, or I tried this thing that we talked about and it totally didn't work. Um, and then my experience in childcare as well, later then of like, yeah, I have a master's degree. I have been doing this. I've been working in this field for a really long time. And I still cannot figure out how to handle this one situation or these many situations. So it's kind of that humility of it doesn't matter where you come from, what experience you have. Humanity is humanity and things are going to happen. You cannot put kids in this little square box, right? So you you really have to be okay with admitting that you're you're not going to be perfect at everything. Um, and for me, that just felt like we, uh, we have our motto at our practice, which is counseling for real life. That That's the goal. I didn't want to be this stuffy therapist who shows up in a pencil skirt and stiletto heels and says, let's talk about how we can improve your child's behavior. I wanted to be the person who comes out who has, <laughs> I have a playroom. I'm in my playroom right now. So I have sand. I got Play-Doh. Like sometimes my clothes don't look the same at four o'clock in the afternoon as they did in the morning because we've played and, and, and stuff has happened and stuff's gotten thrown at me because that happens. Um, so I'm just, I just wanted to embrace them. And I think that's real for people, for people to be able to hear that my kids are not perfect that I've been out in public and there's been a temper tantrum because I think there is this assumption of you're a mental health professional, like you're licensed, you're trained, your kids must be perfect. And no, no, they're not. And nor do I want to put that on them. It's got to make it easier for people to open up to you about their own challenges or concerns or doubts, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, I would assume so. I think people, I feel like people are fairly open with me. I mean, so I'm a mandated reporter, so I have to report child abuse. So sometimes parents are like, I'm a little afraid to tell you what I have to tell you right now. Because people do live in fear of like, if I lost my cool and I spanked my kid, is that something that I'm going to get you know reported to, to CPS for? Um, so there, I mean, therapy is vulnerable for sure. So I'm sure there are things that people still feel like they need to hold back because they just don't know what they can trust. But my goal is for them to feel like 
they trust me and they can share whatever they need to so that we can work through this for them. Yeah. And, you know, I think my, my experience is I, you know, when I've seen, you know, back to adult workplaces, when a leader is willing to show some vulnerability mm-hmm. and say the way you did in that video, uh, I'm a leader, but I make mistakes. I'm not mm-hmm. perfect. You know, I, I, I think that sets um, a really helpful tone because, you know, the, the perfectionism or the demand for perfect for, for perfection can lead to people hiding and covering up problems and being right. afraid to speak up and all sorts of things that just lead to dysfunction within the workplace. Right. And I think going a step beyond that, you know, I, I have my video that says I'm not perfect and I need to live that every day, whether that's in my practice as a leader of my therapists um, and my staff that work here or with my clients if I say that I'm not perfect, but then I act like I am, then nothing has happened. And I think that's a hard part for leadership too. When, when we're selling the idea of come work here, um, you know, this is, we, we value self-care and we value vacation time. And like, we're, we're willing to admit when we're wrong. And then you get in and you find out that like, no, they don't value vacation time and they get mad at you every time you take vacation that's, that's not sending the same message. And so that's a, that's a strong part of leadership that we need to have too. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Living the values, sticking to principles, even if it doesn't seem convenient. I mean, it's not a principle then if you bend under the first sign of uh, stress or pressure. Right. Yeah. And that certainly does get frustrating when what's stated or what's out on the website doesn't line up with reality. I know that, that, that's upsetting to a lot of adults in, you know, uh, different workplaces. But you know, I want to ask you one other thing, Emily. Um, again, our guest today, uh, Emily Lehring, um, among other things, she is a um, we said registered play therapist. Am I making a mistake there? I got nope, it. you're good. Yeah, I almost said certified. But you know, what? What's um, tell us a little bit about? Um, I do have one other question to ask you about that from your blog. But um, in a nutshell, what? Uh, is involved in, in in becoming a registered play therapist, and you know you, you mentioned sandboxes and and getting dirty. Like, just tell us a yeah. little bit day in the life of a play therapist, maybe, and how that. Sure. Happens. Yeah. So uh, anybody who has the registered play therapy or play therapist credential that comes through the association for play therapy, and so they set forth those standards. So they have a certain amount of hours of training that you have to have, either going to conferences or taking college courses in the field of play therapy. Plus you also have to get supervision from somebody who is a registered play therapist supervisor, which I actually am. I have the supervision piece as well on there, um, which is somebody who understands play therapy, training them to do that. And every play therapist is going to be different. There's different models of play therapy. So there are some that are very directive where somebody might come in and say, okay, today we're going to do a puppet show and we're going to learn about how to um, you know, use kind words with each other. There are some that are completely non-directive, which is more my style, where we have just this huge playroom where they come in and they have aggressive themes, they have family themes, they have mastery. There's all these different things that they can choose from to decide what is best for them today in that moment that they're in. Um, so you can really, it, it's across the spectrum, but the, the main thing is that play therapy is a way of understanding kids because kids don't come in and say, hey, I'm four and I'm really stressed out about the fact that my parents are getting divorced. I need you to help me. They don't do that. They don't have the ability to do that, but they can play out some pretty substantial 
thought processes through their play. And so that's how we understand what's going on for them. And then we have the tools and the, the tricks that we use to try to talk with them and help them to learn those skills through play that they can implement in their life. And is that that process of the play therapy, is that one-on-one between the child and you as the therapist or are there situations where kids are playing with each other? Is it just kept very individual? It it can be both. Um, Primarily, you'll see a lot of individual happening, but we have individual therapy, we have family therapy, and we have um, group therapy. So it kind of depends on the therapist and the kids that are in the office, what they might need. So for example, if I have a parent who comes in and says, these kids are just fighting all day long. I cannot get them to stop fighting. I might do sibling sessions where we are doing that. They come in, they fight in the playroom, and I'm there to kind of help them learn some of those skills. So that happens sometimes. There's even parent-child play therapy protocols or, or methods. So you kind of teach the parent how to interact um, with the child and how to set limits with the child and things like that. So it can be kind of across the board. It just depends on the kid or the family and the therapist who's running it. Yeah. And would in what ways would play therapy be helpful for Henry the Corgi in, in your <laughs> book, Henry Knows Best? So with a, again, with the strong-willed kid, we cannot tell them you should not do this. So for me, I'm a um, primarily child-centered play therapist. Um, and so that means I'm non-directive. So Henry is going to come into my playroom and something bad's going to happen. He's going to build a tower and, and I'm going to see that that tower is about to fall over because he's not, he hasn't thought through the process enough. But I also know that if I tell him that he hasn't thought through the process enough, it's going to fall over. He's going to reject that. And he's going to say no, and he's going to fight me on it. He might even say, I'm done with this. I'm not building this anymore. So I'm going to let it fall down. I'm going to just be there with him and talk through it with him while it's falling down and helping him to understand what he did. So it's more of a, there's, there's tools, which I can't, you know, fully explain in in a a short description of this, but there are ways that we talk to them to help them to see, I did this, this happened. And then they kind of decide what they want to do with that. And sometimes kids do just give up and say, I'm done for now. Sometimes they say, I want to try again. And we help them to figure out how to do it differently. And they learn from that. And that is way more valuable than me as a parent or adult teacher, whatever, coming in and saying, next time you do it, you build with the big ones on the bottom and then you do the medium ones and then you do the the small ones. Yes, that's logical. Yes, that's what we want to do as as adults because we love to be able to just help and fix things, but they don't want that. So I'll I'll link, Emily, it's my mistake. I should have mentioned your blog up front, but I'll I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, There there was a blog post um, about uh, in particular, games that could be used to help kids with ADHD develop their attention spans, which is oh, an sure. interesting yep. application. Tell us a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting concept that people don't really understand. So if we want kids to learn math skills. I think our, our logical thought process is, as adults is let's sit them down and let's play a game about math. Let's, let's have them add. Let's have them count out the squares and things like that. That that might be true, but also kids playing on a swing set is linked with, or like, you know, climbing and things like that is linked with things like their scores They're in eighth grade in science and math and things like that. So we have to think of kids as different than what we would think of for adults. Of course, if we want to help a 10th grader to learn math skills, we're probably going to send them to tutoring and someone's going to sit down with them and talk with them about these concepts, but kids are totally different. Um, so 
my blog that I have on there about attention span kind of talks about how if you're playing things that have hand-eye coordination or hand-foot coordination, like kicking a soccer ball, you know, a balloon going through the air and you have to keep it in the air and you have to, you know, just use your right hand this time or just use your left hand playing baseball, things like that, that can actually help to build the structures of the brain that we need to help us with attention span. So the approach is not to say, okay, I want you to sit and practice listening to me because that doesn't work very well. We're trying to engage those other parts of their brain that are needed for that skill. And that's how we do it. Yeah. Well, thank you for for sharing about that. And again, I hope people um, will go check out uh, the blog, Disciplined Children, Um, you know, Emily's practice Encompass Mental Health. Um, her website can be found at SiouxFallsCounseling.com. And then you, you had mentioned before that you and your husband, you had mentioned you're starting a podcast. Is that still in the works? Yes. Yeah. It's not, it's not on there yet. None of the episodes are on there. We have a couple of episodes that we've recorded, but we, we were just doing a, a really big event for our, for an open house for our practice. So that's not up yet. Do you have a title? Are uh, still figuring that out? The Informed Parents. The Informed Parents. So um, I will encourage people to uh, go and 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 look for that. Maybe at the time when this is released, maybe the podcast is available, or I'm sure they can come um, to SiouxFallsCounseling.com and and or to your blog if they want yeah, to get updates. To be able to find it, podcast. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and and in a nutshell, or you know, like what what's the podcast summary of the the theme and and who should be listening and how it'll help. The goal is for parents to have the information that they need to make the best decision for their family. So we talk about a lot of different resources that might be available for for parents or for kids. Um, A lot of it is local. So, um, you know, what what can you do with your kid if your kid has sensory challenges and you need occupational therapy in Sioux Falls? Um, but, But even some of those things, like if we have an occupational therapist on or if we have a therapist talking about trauma and how it impacts the brain, like those things can be informative about um, like how you perceive the situation. So there is some benefit. The most benefit is going to be the local because we'll have links to local places that offer the services or have the, you know, a place that's good for kids in our area. Well, Emily, thank you for sharing all that and and sharing your favorite mistake story and and better yet what you learned from it and how um, it helped you grow. So again, our guest has been Emily Leary. I love that you wrote a book about learning from mistakes. Again, that book is Henry Knows Best a story about learning from mistakes and listening to others. Um, I hope people check that out. And just to connect a couple of dots real quick, I can think of at least two guests offhand, Emily, and to the listeners who thought they knew best and they didn't listen. One, um, back to episode two, um, at the time, uh, Will Hurd was a member of Congress from Texas, and he told a story about how he lost his first runoff election because he thought he knew best and he didn't listen to his political consultants. But you know, uh, he owned up to it. He took mm-hmm. responsibility for what he did instead of, you know, blaming them for not making him listen, you know, so that mm-hmm. I think was a good lesson from him. And then episode 172, Jim McCann, the founder of 1-800-Flowers.com actually got told um, by a lot of people who might've been experts that this idea of um, selling flowers and shipping them through FedEx wasn't going to work, but he thought, you know, it turned out he knew best. So I guess turns out he knew best. And that's, that's the thing is that when it comes to this book it, and strong will people, it's putting the information out, letting them make the decision so that they can own whatever comes from it, good or bad. Yeah. This is the information you have and go with it. 
Yep. And even in, in Jim McCann's case, it was the founder of FedEx himself, Fred Smith, who was telling them, I know best, this isn't going to work, but they wow. tried it and it worked. And, and it worked. Their, their businesses have both benefited from um, Jim being strong-willed enough. But um, Yeah, definitely. It's a cool story. The, the challenges of being an entrepreneur, right? Of when, mm-hmm. when to think really, okay, everyone's telling me I'm wrong. This turned out to be a bonus question for you before we wrap up, Emily. There are times when an entrepreneur has a vision and a lot of people are telling them, I know best, this doesn't, this isn't going to work. And and they plow through it. Sometimes everyone telling you it's not a good idea turns out to be right. And yeah. Well, I think from my entrepreneurial journey, if your ideal customer is telling you it's not going to work, you should probably listen to that. And if it's somebody who's never started a business before and is just, you know, wanting to wait and give you an opinion then you, you, you give that less weight than you do the person who is like your actual ideal customer saying, absolutely not, this is not going to work. That was actually something I will just evolve into this. I wrote a different book previously and it was more for parents. It was like, do this, like these are the different skills that you can use. And I had a bunch of people volunteer to uh, read it and give me feedback. And when I followed up with all of them, they were like, I'm too busy, Emily. I, I'm trying so hard to read the, to read this and give you feedback, but I can't do it. And it was a light bulb for me. I was like, because you're a busy mom. This book is for busy moms and busy moms <laughs> can't read books. And so right. that's kind of how Henry came to be too, because they wanted something they could do with their kids, which is what you can do with a book. So they're still using those skills. They're just using them with their children instead of after they put their kids down to bed after a long day having to try to figure out how to find that book and stay awake long enough to get through the chapter. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a brilliant insight about, are you, are you hearing the thoughts of your actual ideal customers or just random people you're talking to or um, other business owners or professors or whatever? That's a, that, that's a brilliant insight. So thank you for that. And we got a, a bonus little mini favorite mistake story there, I think related to your books. <laughs> that's funny. I hadn't even thought about that one. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing all of those, Emily, and I really, really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Well, again, for more information about Emily and everything she does, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 177. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.